So that's a thing uh, also what we're seeing, right? Yes, a, a, a raised global consciousness around Palestine, which again, the end point, I don't want to lose Palestine in this and Palestinians. It's liberation. It's liberation of 75 years of forced settler colonialism and apartheid, right? That is, of course, our immediate, our immediate ask, right? And our immediate demand, our immediate expectation. And that that is what people are fighting for. And then also to imagine more. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just about dismantling this and then, you know, having another form of domination. It's going back to saying, what are all the pieces that have to be pushed up against constantly in emergence so that we can live in a world that is free of domination and exploitation, regardless of where that happens. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about the politics of health, medicine and the body. In this episode, I'll be speaking with three returning guests, Laura Shihai, Stephen Shihai and James Schneider, about events currently unfolding in Palestine. By this, of course, I mean the intensification of a brutal occupation of Palestine by Israeli forces as part of their decades-long project of settler colonialism. We'll be discussing what role the media plays in normalizing this project and how it attempts to stifle opposition to it. We'll also examine some of the strategies used to undermine the struggle to liberate Palestine, as well as where these strategies are faltering and failing, as evidenced by the huge movement that is coming together in support of Palestine. Laura Shihai is an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the George Washington University Professional Psychology Program and she is also the co-editor of Studies in Gender and Sexuality and of Counterspace in Psychoanalysis, Culture and Society. Stephen Shihai is the Sultan Qaboos Professor of Middle East Studies and Director of the Decolonizing Humanities Project at William & Mary, where he is also a Professor of Arabic Studies. Stephen is the author of a number of books, including Camera Palestina, Photography and Displaced Histories of Palestine, with Salem Tamari and Issam Nassar, Arab Imago, A Social History of Portrait Photography, 1860-1910, and Islamophobia, The Ideological Campaign Against Muslims and Foundations of Modern Arab Identity. Together, Lara and Stephen are also the authors of Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, Practicing Resistance in Palestine. Also joining us today is James Schneider, who is a political organizer, writer, and the communications director for Progressive International. He is a co-founder of Momentum and worked with Jeremy Corbyn as part of the Labour Party. He is also the author of Our Block, How We Win, which published last year with Verso Books. As usual, please do consider going to the link in the show notes and signing up to support Red Medicine with a monthly donation. Not least of all because you will be helping to support a venue which gives people like James, Lara and Stephen the space and time to discuss important topics in the depth that they deserve. I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of those who have signed up for a monthly donation. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support Red Medicine in other ways, you could do so by giving the show five stars on Apple or Spotify, or sharing this episode on social media or with people you think might enjoy it. Now, with all that said, onto the conversation. I should say briefly that This episode was recorded before the temporary ceasefire that has been announced this morning 
and as such, we do not comment on it. To start off with, I mean, I mean, what have you made of the developments over the last month and a half? I know that's a big question, and we're kind of going to be talking about it throughout the whole conversation, but specifically, I'd, I'd be really interested to know what you've made of the narrativization and the representation of these developments and how those conversations are being had. So, Lara or Stephen, if you want to go first. I mean, I, I thanks. Thank you for having us. And it's, it's it's really great to be in conversation with with both of you. And I just, Sam, thank you for all your work that you do. And it's really fantastic. And I appreciate you centering Palestine as well. Um, I mean, it's a big question. And I think, you know, it's one of those questions that um, realizations unfold on the daily basis of what is actually happening, right? I think if we think about the narrativization, there are a number of which that are happening, and I'll try to be brief, and which is at one level, you know, for the Palestinian people, this was October 7th, was a revelatory movement that for whatever one might say about it, it was a moment, it was the jailbreak that wasn't possible, right? It was the spoons digging out of a prison. And it forced the world to appreciate or to realize that Palestinians aren't docile victims waiting for extermination, but they're there always in struggle, waiting to reclaim their return. And that it became the catalyst, what I, uh, how I see it, of a worldwide movement that has already been and always been in motion for a while, but has really galvanized a global movement. You know, we all thought that climate change might be the catalyst for the world revolution. And we realize it's Palestine, just like the book by Emmy O'Brien and, and uh, Iman Abdel Hadi, you know, called Everything for Everyone. You know, the, the world revolution starts in Palestine and that's, and Palestine is important for that reason. On a more necropolitical, psychotic, you know, capitalist imperialist way, I think we see imperialism and colonialism and settler colonialism in full force. And Lara said a couple of weeks ago, you know, that Israel and the United States, and in particular the United States and the media, don't have anything left but the truest bones of settler colonialism and Zionism, which is a sort of a limitary discourse, right? There's no apology. Palestinians are not human. Therefore, they're savages, they're animals, they're whatever. Therefore, they are not eligible for any human rights or codes of war or codes of conduct or anything like that. So what we see is like the full, we see imperialism and colonialism in its full force, right? Mm -hmm. I just, I think that's what we'll be talking about a lot more and that we can be more detailed about it. But I think that's just a larger arc. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're seeing, you know, it's happening in real time. And I think there's one thing that's really important for all of us to to sort of hone in on is that the things that we are seeing happening in real time, and I've seen this in many instances, like on social media and folks from the ground in Gaza and elsewhere in Palestine saying it feels like decades are happening in one week, right? And something to really hone in on is the force that's being used, the tactics that are being used, the rep outright repression in Palestine and outside of Palestine, right? We see this across Europe and in the context of the settler colony of the United States, the bold-faced repression for anybody who dares say 
this is what's actually reality and this is what's happening and what reality is not dictated by by you know zionism or by the settler colonial state of israel right is what palestinians have been telling us for 75 years and the global movement is a rising consciousness and an ability for folks because it's so bold-faced and because it's happening with such speed and at such an alarming rate and with and it's just coming out of the blue for so many people is that the consciousness of folks is so raised right now and a refusal to take in the narrative, even as we see mainstream media spin, right? Like I was listening on, you know, somebody asking um, a spokesperson for the United States of like, is it, uh, is Israel committing war crimes? Yes or no. And them sort of really tripping over themselves to be like, I am not judge and arbiter at this point. It's like, it's a yes and no question. We're all seeing it, right? And so in many ways, yes, the narrative has alacrity and the moving goalposts are part of what allows us to see the logics of settler colonialism and imperialism that hold contradictions and that will bend themselves all sorts of ways to have the coherence they need to exact the violence they need when they need it. This has been, we've known this all along, but we are seeing this in real time, people smuggling out their stories for us, it being televised, right? When we say the revolution will not be televised, this is being televised right now as it's happening. And so are the tactics and the violence of states and settler powers. And so um, nothing happens like that if there if there isn't also a recognition that the narrative is lost. And there's a lot of recouping to ha to happen. And when you can't recoup a narrative, then you just have violence left. Yeah, um, thanks for having me as well. And I really agree with that. I mean, the, I think the last few weeks have been tremendously terrifying at basically every level. I, I agree that they've been clarifying in their assertion that the Palestinian people exist, that they are not a security problem that can be managed through you know Netanyahu's political genius and ability to uh, negotiate diplomatic gambits with Saudi Arabia and and other autocratic Arab states but it's also been extremely clarifying about what is the Israeli regime and what undergirds it and clearly what undergirds it is a denial of the Palestinians' existence. It's, I think, when the finance minister, Smotrich, says that the Palestinians don't exist, or Israel's ambassador to Britain has previously said that the Palestinians don't exist and that only Israel should have um, control from the river to the sea, you know, that's actually the underlying logic of the state. It's not an aberration. Uh, and I think that's been very clarifying. I think it's also made clear what's already happened with the shifting of the balance of moral legitimacy in the world system. Uh, I think it's made it very clear that that has now swung from north to south. Now, that doesn't mean that the south is perfect in the same way that the, the north, where it held uh, supposed moral legitimacy in the 90s and the, and the noughties, that was necessarily the case. But you can see this with the great weight of countries not only condemning what Israel is doing in uh, in Palestine, but also 
beginning to take diplomatic action. You're seeing the withdrawal of ambassadors. You're seeing there's this emergency BRICS summit. I note that Narendra Modi of India is not going. India has its, it's the one country in the South, other than, you know, a couple of small Pacific islands because they've been bought. But basically, India is the only southern state that isn't 100% behind the Palestinians. Um, and I think all of that's been very clarifying. I think imperialism is staring us all in the face and no one can now ignore it and the role that Israel plays in the imperial system. I mean, it is clear that you have the big brother of imperialism, which is the US. You have its little brother, the UK, and a couple of other slightly more errant little brothers in, in the EU. And then the the mad, violent cousin in uh, in Israel. And you know, the mad violent cousin might do things in ways that you don't want it to, to do, but at the end of the day, they're still family. And that's how the entire system is operating. And I think, you know, again, this horrible bombardment of Gaza has shown very clearly, and I think, you know, you're talking about the, the possibility for the world revolution beginning in Palestine. And why is it Palestine? Why is it a turnkey to understand major parts of the world system? And I think, because it is both so central to uh, imperialism and runs so contrary to the hegemony that imperialism seeks to project. The idea of a human rights, rules-based order, rule of law, and so on and so forth, which you know we're seeing being ridden over in the most you know, ludicrous and grotesque ways. But I think also, you know, one final way it's been extremely clarifying for countries in the global north, in the US, the UK, in Europe, is how we don't live in democracies. And if you're going to have imperialism abroad, it means you're going to have oligarchy at home. So if we want to be free in the US, in the UK, and so on, actually, Palestine has to be free, because Palestine being free means the dismantling of the system of empire. And it's a system of empire that doesn't give great benefits to the majority of the population in the imperial countries. So, you know, take the public polling in the US and the UK, you know, vast, vast majority in support of a ceasefire. You know, in the UK, I think it's something like 8% of people don't want a ceasefire. 8%, right? There's maybe 15, 16% say they don't know. And then it's like two different sorts, then two different sorts of ceasefire, like total ceasefire or, you know, ceasefire so that we can save some, save some lives. But basically, it, the support for Israel's policies and therefore the policies of uh, the US, the UK as the, as the not just providing diplomatic cover, but arming uh, Israel, you know, it might be an IDF finger pushes the button that drops the bombs on Gaza, but it's an F-16 plane give, you know, that was gifted by the US to Israel to better continue its domination of the Palestinian people. Uh, and this is not supported in even in the imperial court. So you see the big disconnect. Our political media class is in lockstep behind Israeli war crimes, You know, so much so, as you're saying, they like to pretend that the war crimes don't exist and actually are making themselves more and more ridiculous. Because we're, you know, we're living in a time when consent in the ruling order is is very shallow. Anyway, people hate the media, people hate their politicians in the in the US, the UK, the global north, and, and rightly so. And they can see they're lying. Now, this doesn't mean that the vast majority of people all have 
a uh, a militant and nuanced understanding of Palestinian liberation, but they can see basic right from wrong, and they can see that it makes no sense to obliterate uh, Gaza, which is what's happening, and that they don't need the support of, gov- of their governments. So I think in all of those ways, it's been, I mean, it's been horrific, but it's been extremely clarifying. I think that's partly why it is being so mobilizing in almost every country on earth. You're seeing this spark off in uh, in ways because, you know, I wish it weren't the case in some ways. I wish that, that well, I, I wish the situation in Palestine weren't happening and therefore it wasn't the link key to much of the imperial system. But it does appear to be. And I think that's why it's enraging so many people what's going on in so many uh, in so many different ways, because within it, you can not only see the barbarity which is committed against the Palestinian people. You can not just see the injustice to a to a colonized people, but you can see the basic violent uh, unfairness of the entire world system and also the political systems in in the global north. So it has the potential to unite for now um, lots of different struggles in one. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. But, and, you know, I think in this conversation, we're going to be talking a lot about dynamics and sort of strategies that are applied in the Imperial Corps, you know, countries like the UK, the US. Um, but before we do, Lauren, Stephen, I mean, obviously before today, I've been rereading your work and going back to the conversation we had almost a year ago. And um, I wanted to ask about your sort of friends and colleagues and comrades in uh, Palestine. I know in the work that you did there, you weren't able to access Gaza, but you know, as much as it's a difficult question to ask, and you know, potentially something very difficult to talk about, I wanted to ask you what updates you've been receiving from them, and uh, and and kind of what messages you've been getting from them. Not least of all, because part of what is happening is an attempt to isolate those people um and it's it's obviously incredibly important we hear from them so so yeah right right yeah thanks for that question and and i think that will go to their heart too i think the idea of isolation that you're talking about is also how power and violence works is to make people feel isolated and atomized and alone and i think this global solidarity movement has been you know buffering that a lot but to to ask specifically about our comrades i think is very um is is lovely and and moving every time i mean as you can imagine we've been in contact with them every single day i just uh co-hosted an event with the american arab anti-discrimination committee who are doing phenomenal work to protect everybody the 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 acronym is adc national on on instagram if you want to follow them they've been doing incredible work to protect everybody and and we they sponsored a webinar to hear from voices from Gaza and uh Dr. Yasser uh, Al-Jama' was online and we were you know he was only able to call in because at noon the day before fuel had run out and all communications in Gaza had shut down because there's no more fuel for that so he was working off an eSIM that a friend had gotten him and so this is this is what we're talking about right he's a psychiatrist he's the lead psychiatrist at the Gaza mental health program and he was able to be online with us for the short amount of time that his connection allowed him to be and and I just want to communicate you know people obviously it's harrowing what's happening there 
and he was detailing what was happening there. But his focus remained, as it always remains, about creating life and life worlds, in, in even against the pressure of deathscapes, right? An insistence that all life will be snuffed out, and him saying when we ask sort of like, what, what do you need from us? Especially as we know, money's not getting in, fuel's not getting in, you know, material support's not getting in. And his answer was, you know, these kids that are here and they will continue to be here, deserve to not live in rubble right afterwards. And we know this about trauma that we can't stop the trauma that's being inflicted on them, but what we can promise them is futures, right? And so be ready when when ev- when all of this is done and there will come a day that this is done and he said that about Gaza but i think maybe also i would extend that and say about settler colonialism or about the occupation in general or about apartheid there will come a day when this is done and that all of us will be ready to be there on the ground building palestinian futures not just sort of being in solidarity with their dead so that's one thing he said. One thing that I want to highlight, and maybe then Estvin can speak to, is that the other thing we're hearing is that when we spoke to you about this, you know, in our book, we we kind of look at the psychotherapeutic commons, and this is primarily through the Palestine Global Mental Health Network, which worked together in defiance of settler colonial borders, right? And saying that Palestine is contiguous, despite the fact that these, you know, makeshift settler colonial borders would would have you believe it's not Um and so I, it's been interesting to get updates from folks in different places across mm-hmm. Palestine. And Gaza, of course, is front row and center. And we need to continue to be talking about what is happening there. Mm-hmm. And also we are hearing about the kidnappings, the assassinations, the home arrests, the indiscriminate taking of political prisoners all across Palestine. Um, so when we say from the river to the sea, that's also what we're talking about is that this is not just in Gaza, this is across the board, depending on where folks are at. So this in this so-called democracy of the settler state of Israel, people are not allowed to watch videos that show anything in solidarity with Gaza. They are not allowed to press like on anything. Um Uh, Mental health practitioners are not allowed to talk about what their Palestinian patients are talking about to their supervisors because they're fearing that the supervisors will report them to the state. And so this is also what we're hearing. We're hearing about different levels of crackdown. And the most egregious of that is happening within what is considered the 1948 borders of the state now known as Israel, right? That is the most crackdown that is happening. The crackdown in other places happened, of course, with indiscriminate violence, but the fascistic violence, and I think, you know, James, you were just speaking to that, right, is that we're seeing that fascism is at the heart of all this, whether it's fascism in Israel, fascism in the United States, or fascism in the UK, or or these fascistic ways of 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 reacting to people having solidarity with her. So that's what we're hearing across the board. But I, you can add. Yeah, I mean, I, I just to, just to build on what Lara said. I mean, we kind of all know what's happening to some degree in Gaza, but we also don't, right? We because there is, I mean, as much as we are seeing things, it's also we're we not seeing a lot. And I know, like uh, you know, we're so thirsty to know what's going on, but it's hard because so much has been knocked out. Um, but and I, I do think it's important also though to note that um, because Palestine is one locality, really, despite the chopping up of it, to note that 
friends in the West Bank uh, from the very early on were trapped wherever they were at the moment. Friends were being massive, you know, incarcerated, students, uh, professors, healthcare workers, people were being beaten up, tortured in places like Khalil, Hebron. So the settler state showed its full force and its full sort of viciousness also in the West Bank. What's happening in Jerusalem is, again, these are all just really amplified quotidian uh, things that happen, but also the fact in Jerusalem where, you know, things are shut down, where there are settler riots, where they've just uh, basically stolen 25% of the Armenian quarter. Um, and so, and then there are friends of ours who are very prominent academics within Hebrew University, for example, Nader Shahub Kvorkian, who actually received a letter from the rector of the university telling her that she will be fired, that she must leave the campus, that she must leave with no due process, right? There's no sort of pro uh, faculty process or anything like that. And then when she, Nadra is a warrior and pushed back, you know, asking, where does this come from? Is this you? And he's like, this came from literally the Department of uh, Education or the head or the, 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 the minister. So, you know, there's really no, I mean, not that if, you know, if anyone lived, anyone's ever been in, in the West Bank or or or, or occupy Jerusalem, everyone there, Israel doesn't have a veneer of democracy. But if even ever had, I mean, it's it's mob rule with the settlers. The the way the state is literally clamping down in the most fascistic way, and of course inside the state now known as forty eight, people are friends that are being you know intimidated. Um, there's if they they're, they're, a lot aren't talking because yeah. you know there's just crackdowns. People are being arrested. People are afraid to have demonstrations because they'll be beat up. Uh, people being, you know, attacked for wearing a kufi. So it's it's not it's not pretty. But I will have to say also there are people who are mobilizing, and in many ways it's hard. We hope we would hope like that all the West Bank would rise up. But you know, occupation is hard. But there are people who are mobilizing. There are people pushing back. There are people who are doing things. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, even though. The heads of like the student union, all these sorts of things at the, at Birzeit University have just been arrested. You know, faculty and 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 staff and, and students are mobilizing to try to organize. So yeah, and I guess that in a way brings us to I think you know what I hope we can do with this conversation is in talking about how these developments are being narrativized here. We can kind of look at the role of people in the countries that we all live in. In the UK and in the US, and 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 what role we have in mobilizing, and and, and what agency we have in this process, um, and I think to do that we can kind of look at the way the media is attempting to pacify or undermine or manufacture consent for what's happening, and now that's obviously quite a big complex process. But James, I thought I would ask you, you know, you have a very thorough first-hand experience of the way in which the British media, at least attempts to kind of stifle, attack, undermine, left-wing organizing. And so I wondered if you could describe what you see that role as um, and sort of specifically what that role is in um, attempting to suppress the movement that is sort of blooming around these recent developments in Palestine. Yeah, so I, I guess I'll just sketch out 
how the media functions in general in a you know very short form and then speak about what it's trying to do specifically around this. The media, we say the free media and so on and so forth, it, I mean, it isn't free. That doesn't mean that there's like you get sometimes in these uh, in these movies, you know, there's there's one baddie who's there, you know, shouting, changing the, the, the headline. No, make the font bigger and, and all of that stuff. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It works far more insidiously, which is that you have billionaires who own much of the media, who appoint executives. The executives know that they get their job because they're doing basically what the, the boss wants. You're much better at doing your job. You're, everyone knows this from every job they've ever had. If you don't have to ask the boss always, hey, boss, what do you want? You just do what they want. And that's what's called doing a good job. And that filters down all the way through the media. So that means that it's not monolithic, that there are openings, there are gaps. People do have some degree of autonomy to do different things. But structurally, that's how it is. And you know, that's why you know, when you see a debate, for example, in a TV studio, and there will be four people who say a ceasefire is an insane idea because Hamas would never do a ceasefire and they're genocidal lunatics. And then there's one person saying, oh, actually, it doesn't really make much sense to kill other people just because some other people have killed. That's not going to do anything. You think, uh, you know, that's because they're, they're cast in those, in those roles. And so what you're seeing is not the, you know, enlightenment ideal of public reason taking, taking place. So that's the basic, you know, that's the basic structure of it. Then how they operated in this. So to begin with, they tried to do and thought they, they could do a sort of Ukraine-type operation on it. Now, of course, the, the situations are very different, and I'm not actually passing any judgment on what's going on in Ukraine by, by saying that. But if you look at the way in which the British political and media class took the Russian invasion of Ukraine to class to the national bosom the idea of Ukraine being basically part of us and the fight being a fight for us, and against this horrible, barbarous force, which is really trying to get at us. It's not really about this middle, this middle force. That's what they tried to do to begin with. And there were efforts to put up the Israeli flag in the same way that they, the Ukrainian flag is on public buildings. Uh, the Israeli flag was projected onto parliament at the request of the Speaker of, of the House of Parliament. They put the Israeli flag at half-mast over the health ministry at exactly the same time that uh, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, was announcing that there would be a total uh, siege of Gaza, no food, no water, no fuel, no electricity, and calling the uh, people of Gaza human animals. But that didn't really hold. Now, you can see it did have an immediate uh, impact in the in public attitudes. If you look at public attitudes, uh, uh, there's one question, which is, who do you have more sympathy for? Which is very open-ended and it's do you have more sympathy for israel more sympathy for palestine or both sides it's a badly worded question but anyway obviously both sides is the one that wins out most of the time um anyway but the 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 sympathy for israel spiked in that in that first week very quickly and in a sense been dropping uh you know down very fast so to begin with i think they thought that they could do that and perhaps the people in, in our political media class aren't very smart and they don't know very much. 
much. This is, I mean, I'm, this is not being sassy. This is basically, this is basically the truth. I mean, I do, I, I know these people, I've worked with, it, with these people and their knowledge about world affairs is not great. And how did we know on October the 8th that Israel was going to commit intense war crimes in Gaza? How do we know that? Do we have a crystal ball? Are we so incredibly intelligent? Do we have a great knowledge of history where we know what's happened before? Well, no, you don't need any of that stuff. They announced it. They said, hey, we are going to do these things. And then they have been doing them for the, for, for the next few weeks. But because those are not things that the British political media class really thinks about, they didn't get, you know, they didn't get ahead, of it, uh, ahead of it at all. So then when the images started coming in from the bombardment of Gaza, and that was greatly mobilizing, but also the fact that, as we were saying before, how the issue of Palestine is this turnkey to understand large parts of the world system, the mobilizations was, were immediately very large. And so they had to move off that Israel is Ukraine, Israel and Ukraine are us type messaging, because basically no one was really buying it, and basically pursue a, a delegitimization strategy on anyone who is pro-Palestinian and on the pro-Palestinian move. I mean, of course, there's, you know, there's some stuff about emphasizing the, the horror of some of the attacks on civilians of October the 7th, um, which, and playing that out, that was, you know, that was a large part of it. But again, that only lasted for so long. And just the balance of news was going to switch because there were new atrocities being committed every day uh, in Gaza at, uh, uh, happening on top of those that happened before. And so, uh, and so it went into delegitimization. And you see that very crudely happening after each big Saturday mobilization. So on each big Saturday, they're huge, they are peaceful, they're militant, they are inspiring, and they can't quite work out what to say about them. So the first week, there's some splinter group from his book, Tahrir, some sort of Salafi literalist group who had some splinter protest of, I don't know, 50 or maybe 100 people. And, you know, they're not on the main protest, they're off the side and there's some guys chanting and, you know, like three guys are like, what do we want? Jihad, jihad. Like, and they go, oh my God, they're chanting jihad on the streets of London. Anyway, this has been running now for weeks, you know, jihad on the streets of London. And they just say it so, you know, so casually. And when you push back, they go, oh, no, it did happen. You're like, yeah, it did happen. Three guys at the splinter thing, not that, you know, you don't have hundreds of thousands of people marching through central London chanting jihad, jihad, jihad. And then they go, oh, no. But they are chanting genocidal chants. And one, there's the elision between jihad, scary word that people don't understand but associate with terrorism. And again, words that, you know, most people in, in, in Britain perfectly understandably don't know terribly much about Israel-Palestine. They also don't know terribly much about anti-Semitism. There are only like 250,000 or 300,000 of us in the UK. So like most people, most people in the UK don't know, don't, don't know very many Jews, don't know very much about anti-Semitism. So if the media are all telling you, oh no, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a cry for the extermination of six or seven million Jews that live in the in the Holy Land. Some people, admittedly not most people, but some people begin to believe it. So they have these basic delegitimization efforts. And it, it keeps going up a notch. But again, they're having to try very, very hard because they are not in control of the situation. 
the reason why they are shutting down protests, more arrests, you know, you see this in country after country, is not because they're acting from a position of strength, it's because they're acting from a position of weakness. And you and you, this came really came to its fore about two weeks ago in the UK, where we were in the planning for the big what would be the biggest um demonstration. It ended up being eight hundred thousand people marching from Hyde Park down to the US Embassy uh, on the South Side River in the week after the um, Congress had passed a $14 billion military package for, uh, for, for Israel. And first of all, our then Home Secretary and the Prime Minister said that we were coming for the Cenotaph. Now, the Cenotaph is the war memorial in Westminster. And the 11th of November is Armistice Day. It's the day that um, the guns fell silent in World War One, And in Britain, that's the day that we commemorate uh, all those who, uh, who died in war. And so they're saying that, you know, we will defend our statues, we will defend our war memorials. You know, there's been no threat to the statues, the war memorials, but it works very well. The media pick it up a lot. And then for the whole week, there's this debate on the media, you know, should the protests go ahead? Should they not go ahead? Um, will the police stop them? Will the police not stop them? The Home Secretary, in effect, calls out the far right onto the streets to defend the Cenotaph. We're going nowhere near. So, the, you know, anyone who, who, who knows their history, which, again, a lot of the media political class don't, uh, it's 11 a.m. that you have the two-minute silence because that's the moment when the armistice was signed. Our, uh, our march was starting at 12.30. Its entire route was between one and two miles west of uh, where the Cenotaph is. It happens after the service and it goes, no, it doesn't go near British government offices because they might be involved. It goes to the US embassy because actually Britain doesn't have an independent policy. We just do whatever the US does. We have a, a Labour Party that tucks in behind the government, that tucks in behind the State Department. Um, in, in terms of foreign policy, we're not really an independent country. But this actually ended up backfiring on them because they couldn't even do this effectively. And they really tried to amp up the, the Senator stuff. So they arrested some Just Stop Oil um, environmental protesters up the road who were slow marching up the road, uh, 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 trying to alert us to the climate emergency. Um, and they arrested them up the road and they dragged them and they put them at the foot of the Senator. So you got uh, you know handcuffed. And then they took this photo of these Just Stop Oil protesters wearing their orange high-vis tops, you know, and they would say, you know, we will defend, uh, you know, we will defend law and order, whatever. Cue the politicians going, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. Look at them. And they're, you know, these, these rebels, these renegades, they're attacking the senator. And unfortunately, got pushed back on because just stopped all like, no, like, we have the video footage. They arrested us 100 yards up the road and dragged us, put us at the foot of the senator and took photos. But this is in their playbook. They actually did this as the response to uh, Black Lives Matter, um, saying that there were threats to the um, Churchill statue. They reused the so-called threat to the Churchill statue. No threats actually existed when there were feminist protests after the uh, the abduction, rape and murder of a young woman walking home from work by an off-duty police officer. The vigil for which was um, violently policed. The police have subsequently had to apologise for that. And again, they the states claimed that it was defending the Winston Churchill statue and erected the police all the way around it so that the image of the day looked like it was all of these angry protesters charging at the Churchill statue when it was nothing of the sort. Anyway, this is how they 
they try to cast the the demonstrators as being you know horrific but it backfired because the the home secretary ended up basically getting fired because she amped it up so much that she ended up attacking the police and saying some really rather stupid things about northern ireland and ended up getting sacked and so the movement carries on and it and it grows and while a concentrated press attack for a week can shift the dial on that specific thing. So if you, again, you look at polling on it, polling uh, the day before the demonstration, 30% thought it should go ahead, 50% thought it shouldn't go ahead on that day, not that protest shouldn't be allowed. And that's because there'd been a whole week of media coverage on it. But it didn't shift the dial on support for ceasefire. It's not like the support for ceasefire had gone down. That continues, that continues to grow. So I, I think these are their basic strategies and they have, you know, in some sense, they have all of the tools. You know, there are very few pro-Palestinian voices that go on the media. There's very little of the media that does proper reporting. I mean, we've had some notable exceptions, Channel 4, but basically you get this lockstep, uh, this lockstep stuff along with the political class, but the facts are just so overwhelmingly in one direction. And people aren't stupid. And images often matter more than words. You know, you can say to people, no, Israel is defending itself because it has to defend itself against evil, Hamas, ISIS, genocidal attack. But then they see the footage and it's children being pulled out of rubble. And, for, you know, for most people, you can see that one thing doesn't necessitate the other thing far from it. And and so this is their basic process, but again, it can be fought and it can be it can be defeated because it's not just that truth and and justice aren't on their side, but basic trust is not on their side either. Right? Can I just say something here? First, I'm all I'm all in favor of laughing at these buffoons because it is just it's just you look at this and I think we do need to look at how pathetic and how how they're bottom feeders because they have nothing else left. And also, I want to speak to the psychic pieces that are happening here and why something like that can happen. Why, for example, the change in for that one week, right, when people are being hammered, why that happens there's this way in which you know this we can look at it and we can laugh and and have some levity and also be like this look over there right look over there finds traction because of islamophobia because of anti-arab sentiment because of anti-palestinian sentiment because we're even seeing for example you know the folks who come out pro-israel the images that they're circulating are from gaza right and like that's how awful it is but i think you know what's being asked in terms of identification this might go back to what you were saying james about the ukraine you know aspect is you're asking people to identify psychically to find the person that they see themselves in right and what's dangerous and insidious like you were saying it's even more insidious is that hypothetical danger that plays on tropes and also on very real traumas. Let's remember this, that Europe is the one that is responsible for anti-Semitism and for the annihilation of Jewish people. So there's also something real about that. And so using that and mobilizing it 
the hypothetical violence of, oh, maybe, like you were saying, that they're coming to do this to us here, just like in the United States, what I was saying a couple of weeks back is like, you know, in San Diego, them saying in San Diego, in, you know, on the southern border, saying that Hezbollah and Hamas militants might be coming over the border. You're mobilizing something very important where then the hypothetical violence comes to actually outweigh the very real violence we are seeing. And that is the perverse psychic inversion. Here are very real children. We see the data and the footage of very real children, NICU babies dying. And still the language about the lie, the fabrication that the media was responsible for, right? about the 40 dead babies that we see repeated over and over and over again comes to replace all the thousands of babies and children that we are seeing. And the only way that can happen and find traction is because of anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab and, and Islamophobic tropes. And I think that's also being clarified where people are like, holy shit, this is how real this is. 100%. I mean, it's so it's so obviously racialized. And that's not to say that um, the majority of, of white people in Britain and the US don't support a, a, a ceasefire. They do. But I mean, you know, I go into TV studios or whatever and, and do do interviews and almost always without fail, the one or two non-white people that happen to work there without fail comes up and says, like, that was great. That, you know, thanks, for et cetera, et cetera basically regardless of their politics regardless of how they're you know coded with with other things and generally speaking the the white people again because they're in the media this is not speaking for all what you know this is about how people are selected you know think that that what i'm saying which is you know basic points of fact are, are in some ways edgy and yeah it, it, exactly as you say like it, the the point about the southern border of the US. I mean, it, it's about the racist imaginary. It really absolutely is. I and mean, I also see it in the the, the weird anti-Semitism that I sometimes get after doing uh, uh, after doing interviews, which is always like, oh, yeah, you're one of the Jews that wants to replace us with the Muslims. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're one of the bad Jews. We support the good Jews that want to keep out the Muslims. And you're like, ah, OK, <laughs> well, that makes it pretty obvious. <laughs> Which is the Elon Musk thing, which is the, the the Elon Musk thing saying that from the river to the sea and the term decolonize are uh, somehow calls for genocide or coded white genocide. Whereas he can also say that someone who says the most obviously anti-Semitic things, he can tweet after them. Yes, what you said is correct. And, uh, you know, uh, that's some of the, you know, the additional injustice and, and tragedy and trauma for Jewish people is that a combination of a righteous desire for national and collective liberation that all people have and the trauma of having a civilization a centuries-long amazing civilization snuffed out in Europe over the, basically the course of, the, of, of less than a decade have been captured and driven to reaction in the service of empire and of the thing that empire needs to support itself, which is racism. And it's it's unbelievably tragic, you know, mentioning it before, to see far right, you know, basically white supremacists championing the cause of Israel should give everybody pause for thought. You should see 
how is it that this is uh, this is lining up? And we, you know, we've 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 seen it in uh, in Britain, where in the 2019 election there were dark um, Facebook adverts targeted at uh, swing voters, which said Corbyn likes Muslims. You can tell that because he doesn't like Jews. I mean, of course, Corbyn lo- loves Jewish people like he loves all people. But you know, that's what they're saying. But the, the the thing that was important for these adverts was not he doesn't like Jews. What a bad guy. They were, it's because he likes Muslims. What a scary guy. It's funny. My next question, I was slightly worried that it might take us off a sort of flow. I was going to ask about the kind of uses of psychoanalysis, but, you know, as the conversation proceeded, we've continued to talk about associations of the word jihad and the kind of misunderstandings there and the, the sort of unconscious links that are made and you know, and then we're kind of talking about trauma. I think it's, it's it's kind of quite obvious why something like psychoanalysis, especially a psychoanalysis that is, you know, doesn't exclude the sort of social and political aspects of of life, are incredibly useful in not only understanding the things that we're talking about here that you know, as you're talking about, just just very much mask off racism in so many instances, but but also kind of thinking through how we kind of develop a counter narrative and so before we kind of move on to speak about maybe a few kind of specific examples that i'd like us to look at i you know i, I do want to ask you lauren Stephen. i mean what 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 does a sort of psychoanalytic lens or a sort of politicized psychoanalytic lens allow us to see in this moment that we may not see with simply uh, an analysis of political economy alone so for me, psychoanalysis, I think, is important because it allows us to recognize it's it, what we don't do, want to do with psychoanalysis is we don't want to psychopathologize any society. For example, we don't ever want to say something like Israel is a psychotic state or Israelis, Israelis are psychos or Amos Oz in the 80s. They're like, oh, you know, Israelis are just neurotic because they're they're you know living the the trauma of of, of the Holocaust. So I think what we don't want to do is like you know do what, what colonizers used to do and and psychopathologize whole peoples, and that's that's like the wrong use, right? Mm-hmm. Of um of psychoanalysis. So a lot of people do that. Like Muslims, Muslims only understand violence because they come from patriarchal societies and their their, their father figure and the law of the father and all some nonsense, right? So I say that that's the wrong way to psychoanalysis. But for me, what psychoanalysis does show are processes. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about, for example, all these processes by which ideolo- ideology works. And I mean this as a Marxist. How ideology works in us and through us and how we do the work of ideology. So for example... I don't know if the, the, the media is actually saying, hey, I'm going to necessarily work for my boss or not. The real, even worse, is that the media actually believes the line of the boss. They see the world through that those same lenses, right? They actually believe, right? They believe when they see one jihadi that that jihadi is, then they can just like psychically, ideologically associate every brown person with that person. They can't differentiate because that's what, how racism works psychically. And it's to think about when you when someone like me, Elon Musk talks about, and it's not only Elon Musk, about decolonizing is basically 
like this reverse replacement theory, which of course that is, these are, this is literally fascist ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because they can't imagine a world without domination. They're imagining this, this, the way, the way, the, the, the sort of social discourses and discourses of power in which they have been, their subjectivity has been formed is through domination. If Europe changes in any particular way, white people will disappear. If, you know, if there's actual justice in Palestine, Jews must disappear. They can't imagine, right, racism. If we eradicate racism, then white people must not be on top anymore. So, like, all those paradigms fall to pieces because they cannot imagine a world without domination. They can't imagine a world without racial capitalism, you know, and imperialism. Uh, they can't imagine a world where we don't differentiate ourselves to certain ways. It has to be a competition. And I think that a psychoanalysis allows me to identify those processes. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's married with, you know, a lot of you know, Marxism, for example, doesn't hurt either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to see actually on this decolonized thing. It's like it's really interesting because we're seeing this also as the moment where institutionalized psychoanalysis or psychoanalysts who find themselves only identified with institutions and organizations that speak for them are also using this line of decolonization. So all of a sudden, they're terrified, right? And they're using this or mobilizing this uh, and using words, fascistic words, right? Like purity, purity politics and sort of conjuring up this idea that those of us who might care about a politicized psychoanalysis as not an invention of ours, right? But actually is one, if we want to talk again, talk back to this idea of the global South and the global North about something that the folks in the global South have been doing for ages because the conditions of their living necessitate, right? They can't dissociate the social and the political because they often live in conditions that are uh, dictated by powers outside of their being or their suffering is because of the global north or because of imperialism or capitalism or racial capitalism or any one of these things. And so I think what we're seeing is that this discourse is now being treated in institutional psychoanalysis, or I would say mainstream psychoanalysis, Eurocentric psychoanalysis, as an existential threat. And it's actually being talked about like that. So, for example, I'll just give you an example. The the president of the American Psychological Association, who is not a psychoanalyst, but works on decolonization. She's a black woman. And she had tweeted something about decolonize that has to do with like African art being stolen. And she wrote decolonize. And all of a sudden now she is under a right-wing Zionist media campaign to have her removed from the APA because it it was said that that comment was anti-Semitic, even though she said nothing about Palestine, she said nothing about Judaism, she said nothing. But what an interesting thing to see yourself projected into the word decolonize, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I mean about existential threat, that even a word that is just said with no context, all of a sudden you're seeing yourself in it because of the existential threat that's being activated um, we hear the same thing. Of course, there are, I, I know for a fact, basically the the massive smear campaign that I have against me about outside forces who are not clinicians, who are not uh, even, uh, even scholars of psychoanalysis, infiltrating spaces and working together to generate fabricated ideas about what they call critical social justice theory. 
and saying that we are there's a takeover happening and that there's a purge happening of traditional psychoanalysts, right? I mean, this is again the replacement theory. All of these are first of all, anti-Semitic and fascistic, right, uh, claims, and they're being used. And what's sort of being hidden is, of course, wokeness, critical social justice theory. And among the things that these so-called clinicians, this cadre of clinicians use, and weirdly, I'm at the head of this cadre, right, is that um, among critical race theory, queer theory, and BDS theory, right? <laughs> Not BDSM. <laughs> Boycott, divestment, and sanctions are a central piece of this. And so they're giving us the play, the psychic playbook of like what they hear when they hear decolonize, what they hear when they hear liberation theory, right? To insert and say that this is a central tenet of a movement that doesn't exist. But now it does. They're normalizing a discourse now where people are citing this discourse and saying, oh, yes, those people that talk about decolonization or those people that talk about Fanon or those people who talk about um, social justice also advocate for BDS and all that. Now, again, this is very telling because part of the reason why this is a global movement is because it is an intersectional movement that takes into account labor, that takes into account queer and trans issues, it takes into account all that. And so there, there's also a telling on themselves about what they're worried about. If the ter- If the entry point is Palestine, they're also imaginary because they can't imagine a world without domination is also, oh shit, if it's Palestine, what comes next? right? These folks are all, are connecting these struggles, even though it's a fabrication in terms of the start of it, right? There, There is a thread that they are seeing, and therefore the response, the annihilatory response is a fascistic response as well. I just want to say, and in Britain in particular, that's why transphobes, the transphobic left, quote-unquote, liberals, the transphobic, you know, left-leaning transphobes, are incredibly anti-Palestinian, mm-hmm. and they're they're basically and they and they of they course of course then they're anti-identity politics, whatever that means, right? So it's not coincidental that these things come together. These things that are chimeras, they're just they're fantasy chimeras, right? That there's somehow these sorts of things. There's this global horde that want to replace them. All come together, and in Britain, you guys. what lies underneath all of that is a basic truth and 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 these people in their in their kind of um deranged ways sort of fantastical ways are getting at a basic truth now for example if your definition of israel is jewish supremacy from uh, either the River Jordan to the Mediterranean. In fact, it has to be. But if it is in any part of the territory, then it, ha- then it has to be all of it. If that is your definition of Israel, then saying from the River to Sea, Palestine uh, will be free is a call to destroy that. It is. It just, but it just isn't. A, and so they're showing, you know, they're showing actually what they stand for in each of these things. Like, yes, su- supporting you know, migrants' rights or decolonization or so on and so forth, that they are seeking to dismantle injustice. That is what they are trying to do. So if your definition of yourself 
or your or your community or so on is I can only exist if I live in it and 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 my being only exists if I'm in a state of domination over others then yeah exactly as you're saying it it, it shows a lot of, of about yourself mm. well let's let's return back to I think probably one of the key animating fantasies of, of the conversations we've all been you know subjected to over the last well not just months but years and it is something we touched on a little bit earlier, which is the fancy of Islamophobia and, and, and the kind of fantastical imaginary, the racist imaginary of, of Arabs, of Muslims, of Palestinians. I mean, especially with regards to Palestinians, there is a, an ideological commitment to the non-existence of Palestinians that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Zionist project. They don't exist, not only as a people or as a nation, they just, you know, they're just an inconvenience. In what ways can we see that sort of unconscious commitment or that or that fantasy animating the way in which these conversations are had not just on the kind of level of what racists and members of the far right are saying but also implicitly in the kind of bounds of the conversations that we're having in the sort of so-called political center um i wrote a book on islamophobia about 12 years ago and the argument could be made that sort of if we think about as number one is Islamophobia, like racism, are fluid, right? They're modes of domination that work to perpetuate systems of domination. So systems of domination will open and close and conscript and expel to stabilize itself. If you look at the 1990s, certain forces were trying to make inroads into or, or mainstream Islamophobic tropes, certain Islamophobic tropes. And certain people, because of, you know, other reasons like, you know, oh, maybe we should have good Palestinian partners. So maybe there was like a rise of also like, you know, positive or the good Arab trope, right? As opposed to before, the bad Arab trope was a Muslim, was not only a Muslim, he, the bad Arab trope was really the communist, was really the PLO, the PFLP, the, the airplane hijacker. But there were these right-wing, the neocons were really pushing for a global change and, and regime change and what happened was is 2011 enabled the mainstreaming of a lot of islamophobic tropes which kind of hung out in the right wing and really didn't make too many they were, weren't taking and making inroads those by the way islamic tropes in north america are very different than the ones in in britain and europe arabistan that arabistan discourse didn't really exist and the right in Europe and in Britain, really couldn't co connect in a real substantive way with the right in the United States, blah, blah, blah. What happens to bring it up to, to the current moment is that this moment allows the, the mainstreaming, the operationalizing of right-wing discourses to serve power to serve political agendas and that's why you know we started out saying you know there's nothing left but this this language right you know I, you know israel doesn't the, we have the idea of like a narrative 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 it, narratives power doesn't need truth power uh, power only needs narrative to legitimize its act its force that's all and so islamophobia is now being activated easily because of the work done before. So when you say something like Hamas is a Muslim party, 
they are animals. They can't be reasoned with. They're irrational. They hate queer folk. They hate women. All that sort of stuff, as we said, does the work. Doesn't matter. We can't. And then what happens is, of course, we end up engaging these other arguments like, oh, no, they don't. You know, no, they're a queer. And it's a lot like, hey, there are queers in Gaza. Yes. Yeah. What? I mean, this is this our conversation right now, right? Because that's what Islamophobia does. It changes the, the point of which in which we are discussing the points of confrontation and antagonism, right? Because and what it does is it conscripts certain discourses into being uh, uh, and giving legitimacy to state power, right? I don't know if, if that's much too abstract, but I think you know mm-hmm. we can think about it how it very 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 easily plays out within the mainstream in in United States politics and in Israeli politics. Can I just come back on on, on that very quickly? So I think you. You, you've expressed how Islamophobia and racism, how it functions and why it's fluid so incredibly well. But also, I think it shows how it's not quite functioning in the same way. They're trying to mobilize it and it is radicalizing a portion of the population. But what it's really meant to do is not, you know, its, it's main aim isn't to radicalize the, the, the stormtroopers, but to read passive consent in the majority and i think it's that it's the it's the latter thing that it's not quite doing in the same way i i mean i'm it it may be different in the us this is from my from from my perspective in the uk that they opened you know after the 7th of october they opened up that box that had kind of been put in the cupboard which was the 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 muslim terrorists frightening frightening box and they started reusing all of that stuff and you can just feel it doesn't have the same purchase that it had 20 years ago in like in the general in the general public it it is fun you know we have there's a there's a that kind of emerging hard right thing and and our politics uh has in a lot of ways it, it shifted more in that direction or, you know, away from a kind of, you know, a so-called liberal, liberal establishment uh, consensus. Um, of course, the liberal establishment consensus always mobilized racism and Islamophobia to its own ends, but it just, you know, did it in a, it, it, in a way that made it seem like it wasn't its main thing. Whereas now, if you look at the, you know, the Tory party today, that basically is their main thing. It's to uh, it's around that anyway. So I'll just say I I think that's a perfect description of 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 how it operates and also illuminates I think some of what our openings are now and also that point about how it shifts the point of antagonism. We have to always be borne in mind if we're stuck rebutting whatever their latest nonsense is. That's not to say you don't have to rebut that the, the nonsense must be rebutted. But if we're only talking about that, if we're only saying, no, we're not going near the Senator and not saying you do realize that 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 the children are being killed, that journalists are being killed, that aid workers are being killed, that blah, 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 um, that these people have been dispossessed for decades and so on, then it's sort of done its job by blunting it. If I just add on one, just to clarify, so I, I agree with you completely um james so i thank you for that i just want to also say that like i mean to put it in more concrete terms i think i i think you know there's this whole thing going on now about like oh this is this generation is this generation is you know it's more you know pro-palestinian than the previous generations and 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 i would want to sort of 
tact uh, to rather than thinking about this as a generational thing, but this as a, a historic event, right? Not a generational shift. It's a historic shift. And that's precisely because, as you were saying, the Islamophobic tropes kind of have lost a little bit of their cachet and they're identifiable as right-wing tropes. However, with that said, my my argument also would be state powers don't care about facts. What they need are tropes. What they need are discourses of, of coherence. So when you have Islamophobic tropes, for example, about crazy Muslims who will kill people and, and chop up babies, and then where do they go? They're running around on little motorcycles and from their, motorc their motorcycles come out of tunnels. They have, where are those tunnels? Those tunnels have to go, we have to follow those tunnels. Those tunnels goes back to hospitals. Those hospitals are command centers, right? By the way, this is not even to mention the who runs around under the ground, insects. There's this whole concept, no one's talking about like how basically, you know, Hamas are a bunch of insects running on the ground and being like, you know, whatever. But um, all the state of Israel and the United States need is a coherent narrative to give sense to their genocidal policies, right? And, in, in, and all they need to do is through each war crime, through that coherent narrative, which is false, everybody knows it's so false, but it makes sense at this, this one sort of racist level, right? Every war crime is then naturalized and, and, nor and normalized. So the first thing you do is you destroy, you take five days, six days, seven days, eight days to do what? A war crime to attack a hospital like you you mentioned, right? And but then now we've moved on and they're in another, they're they're at the the Indonesian hospital and they're going to do what they did in one week to the Indonesian hospital. They'll do in one or two days to the Indonesian hospital, right? So it's become normalized. So that's what I mean by operationalized. Thank you. Um, and it's, there's a functional element of the coherence of this uh, 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 of racist tropes that become the narrative, the state narrative, to enable power to just do what it wants to do. That's kind of I don't know if that's a little more direct of what I was saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. sorry um, if I cut you off. Uh, no, you didn't. I was actually just about to ask about the attacks on hospitals because I think it you know it relates to how these perhaps more abstract imaginaries allow for something that is um well is very i think by design very confusing where you have a debate about whether or not israel attacked a hospital and then a week later somehow naturally seeming we're now having a debate about oh of course we're attacking a hospital here's all the reasons why it's reasonable to do so i mean i do want to stay on that slightly because i think that's a clear example of like it's clearly very confusing uh, and distressing in a number of ways, but it also has an internal logic to it that I would kind of like to draw out. So sounds really silly. How does that happen? I mean, <laughs> I can't think of any other way to kind of ask that question. Like, it seems so absurd, and yet it's happening in a number of instances. I mean, sorry to ask you in such a blunt way, but like, how, how do we get from those two discussions? How does it become so normalized to go from, you know, how dare you suggest that we'd shoot a rocket at a hospital that was of course Hamas don't be ridiculous we've got this very dubious audio listen to it and then before our eyes we're now having the debate of you know human shields and tactical bases on the hospitals and and frankly as much as I think about it I can't quite make sense of how that terrain shifts so quickly so yeah how how, how, how do we make sense of that um, James, 
And I don't, but yeah. Um, so I think basically there are two things going on. And to find out what they are, we should just listen to what the Israeli officials are saying. And what they are saying is there are no innocent people in Gaza. They've said it from every single top level of the state, time and again. Uh, we've had the president of the country who's, you know, supposedly centre-left, I mean, he's not, but supposedly centre-left, uh, et cetera, say, it's not just Hamas, quote, it's an entire nation that's responsible. You've, we've seen the uh, Israel's ambassador to the UN say, journalists are Hamas. UN workers are Hamas. WHO workers are Hamas. We've seen probably the slickest uh, Israeli official, uh, Mark Regev, who is now the spokesperson for the prime minister, having been well, a whole number of roles, including being an ambassador to the, to the UK, um, saying, you know, we don't know how many of the children, we don't know how many of the children died and we don't know who uh, who's a terrorist. You know, basically suggesting that all of the people who died could be uh, guilty in some way. We have absurd things like the current ambassador, who's very low rent, um, Zippy Hotavelli, uh, um, say that over 50% of the casualties uh, were of the dead um, killed in Gaza are Hamas. Um, so we can see, you know, how can they attack hospitals? Well, from what they say, what they are saying in public, they're saying the quiet part out, out loud, we think all of these people in here are legitimate targets. It's not that, because if you turned it around, and, and I, if you do try this, they don't have an answer, because you say, hold on, even if a terrorist who's just committed a terrorist act runs into a hospital, I wouldn't bomb it. You know, it's full of you know, it's full of hundreds of people who are, 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 are innocent. Even if you've got an evil terrorist mastermind in there who's just gone and killed people with their bare hands, you wouldn't kill all these other people to get at them. You'd find another way to do that. And they've got no answer to that because the actual logic is we don't care about these people. And you see it in newspaper reports. You see it in things that generals are saying about uh, wanting to have an epidemic in southern Gaza because there would be fewer to deal with, about making them uh, live in tents in, in the Sinai, etc. Et I mean, there are so many bold quotes where they say, these people are legitimate targets for us and we don't want them there. So I think that's why they go for hospitals. Why did they do the, like, Hamas bro one, hey dude, um... Like, I think we bombed the hospital, Hamas dude too. Yeah, bro, no, I think it was Islamic Jihad. You know, like this kind of ludicrous bit, you know, why do they do that? I think because also they've got running a, a, alongside this, a sophisticated but also half-assed, or like highly technically skilled but also half-assed because they don't really have to, propaganda machine that pushes back on things. So clearly some people were working overnight Hey, how can we make the videos? Can we look at it from the other angle? Let's turn it round the other way round. Let's make it look like it's coming from the West rather than from the East. Hey, look, we've got this new thing where we can record two different voices in two different locations and put them together, which is what the metadata shows you in that video, which you won't see that in that recording. I mean, of course, 
you know, people have said the Arabic is nonsense and that the dialect doesn't work and all of that. But I mean, even in its reporting, you can click on the file and look at it and you can see that it's not one conversation they've recorded. They've recorded two bits and put them next to each other. So, you know, even then it should be before, you know, a digitally manipulated audio file that the uh, IDF says is blah, which of course it's not, it's not reported. So I think those things can sit together. You've got, we don't really care about the people. They are legitimate targets. But we also have this uh, um, this uh, propaganda operation, which has to uh, which has to continue. And the reason why we don't have we can say the quiet bit out loud, and we don't have to be embarrassed, and we don't have to um, be better with our propaganda, and we don't stop our IDF people taking like gross thirst trap social media videos on in uh, you know while they're occupying saying genocidal stuff and taunting Palestinians and so on and so forth. You know, they, you know, the military is a disciplinary apparatus. Like it can stop them doing that if it wants, but it doesn't. It tacitly encourages all of that sort of thing because there's no one to stop them. Because going back to the imperial system, the big brother and the little brother and the other little brothers, they would prefer them to be politer in going about their their actions, but they aren't going to fundamentally stop them. You know, Joe Biden can, or the other bloke, Blinken can, uh, you know, cry his crocodile tears about how he's saddened by Palestinian children under rubble, but then still arm them again to put more Palestinian children. I think also, you know, what I what I want to say is that um, I agree with all of that, and I think, but you know, it if they get a propaganda win, that's a win. Like that's right. And and that's why I think it's back to the Islamophobia thing is that it's no longer Muslims. It's Palestine. Mm-hmm. It's the word Palestine It's the word Palestinians. Right. If we can get the psychic collapse of ISIS and Hamas, fine. Great. Awesome win. Mm-hmm. Right. But you but when you mobilize, it is the word Palestine that shuts everything down. That is what is being over penalized. And controlled. It's the speaking of Palestine, which is why it's really important for us to continue speaking Palestine, to say Palestine, not to say Arabs, to say Palestine. It's Palestinians that are being genocided. It's not. Of course, pan-Arab revolution runs through Palestine, but it's Palestinians. And to keep saying that, and that's why the kafi is important. That's why the Palestinian flag is important. That's why these things are being right barred also. So I'll say that's number one. Number two is... Sam, what I would say to you, and this is maybe the clinician in me, but also the important of reality testing, it's really important that this doesn't make sense to us. At the same time that James is saying, yes, listen to what they're saying. Like, why do we always do the work of recuperating power, just like with Trump or with is with Israeli officials? We're just they don't actually mean that. Oh, they're not going to do that. Let's stop recuperating power. Fascists mean what they say and they do what they say. Right. So the liberal or sort of like um, I would say over intellectualized impulse is to parse out what they're saying and give reason to where like you were saying is that state power doesn't need reason. They're just going to be like, we're going to do this crime and then do this crime. And we've seen this over history. So to to sort of divest ourselves from the over intellectualization and filling in the gaps being like, no, this can't possibly be true. Right. But also to retain our humanity in not being able to metabolize the crimes that are happening at the speed of which and how people are being conscripted and being okay with that. I mean, back to the point that James was making, it's like, even if there's one 
terrorist inside there. And and of course, I know this very well, the word terrorist is mobilized in very specific ways, but I'm saying that on purpose, is that there are entire fucking movies made about this, Hollywood movies, where there's the most monstrous villain in the world that might also steal the moon, by the way, right? And completely destroy the entire world, that the the hero that we're supposed to identify with has to have this like moral fucking breakdown because oh my god there's a child there and i must find a ingenious way to find to not kill the child but also to kill the bad guy every batman film every film that people are raised on are based on this and so the only way that that is why we should never regularize that this is okay and to understand that it's not just dehumanization, it's dehumanization of Palestinians. And that is why, that is a stand-in. That is why Palestine becomes a stand-in for everything else. Because if every person is an emergent combatant, they're not just a regular combatant, they're a Palestinian combatant. And that in and of itself makes them that much more dangerous for everybody, right? But I want to really urge us to hold on to both of those things, to hold on to the neck-breaking and mind-breaking and mind-melting gymnastics that are happening for us to constantly be like we should not be able to metabolize this mm-hmm. and also to divest from the over intellectualization of filling in the gaps and thinking that fascists aren't going to do what they're going to do this is not a surprise to anybody right and certainly not to palestinians yeah i mean i guess the fact is that it it isn't metabolizable for large numbers of people in a huge number of places and because of that, we are seeing, um, you know, as Stephen described, a kind of historic shift in terms of the movement of global solidarity with Palestine. I mean, I just want to kind of talk about, I think, for the, for the kind of final part of this conversation, that blooming, that 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 movement that, you know, we all obviously consider ourselves part of. I mean, one of the only things that hasn't been just soul-destroying about the last month and a half has been huge demonstrations, direct actions, strikes, teachings, boycotts, you know, all the weapons at our disposal as people on the left and I guess workers, if you will. Like, I mean, it's the only, it's the only thing that you can kind of hold on to at the moment. And I, I want to talk about that and, and basically just kind of ask you, you know, what you make of the movement. I mean, I think it's probably different in the UK and the US, but I think there's a shift towards an internationalist politics that has been lacking um, in both contexts, yeah, I mean, maybe the way to put it is, you know, as we're talking about openings in these in these situations that feel uh, hugely determined, there are still openings and there are still opportunities. Mm-hmm. What is the nature of the opportunity that we have in front of us now? Um, that's a great question. I, I think we all would, would you know, I'll, I'll keep it brief. I just think that, and it, you know, you don't want to sound crass, right? We don't want to sound crass and be like, we're winning, right? as there's a genocide going on it sounds sounds a bit you know in poor taste but i think it's to say that there is now a time that lines are being drawn and everyone's seeing that everyone's seeing that state power is being crass as well and saying you can't say the word palestine if you say the word palestine if you you wear the kufi if you have the flag that means you're a jew hater this is so absurd and the whole world knows this right so literally the masses, and I very rarely use that word, are actually collating now, or sort of coalescing now, and becoming this sort of upsurge. And it is an intersectional 
international movement and an internationalist movement. So I think my my I, I think everyone is is talking not only about Palestine, but then how Palestine informs our you know our approach to thinking about you know racial capitalism, about abolition, about you know trans and queer issues, you know about climate justice, right? We're about indigenous rights in in so many settler colonies, right? I think you know it's challenging all of us to think about you know why are we talking about what's the relationship between, for example. Palestine and what's happening in Sudan, how UAE might be funding one force and be making this whole thing, and where UAE is also sending weapons to, to Israel. Right? I mean, we can see it's a, it's 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 really galvanizing a global movement, but also in a global movement, a global analysis. All these things, all these people who have been working together, it's now sort of coming together and being galvanized. Um, mm -hmm. and again, I think people in, 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 in all over the global South see this and in the global North see this, you know, right. and it's also the last thing I will say is I think that finally people are realizing what it means in North America and in Europe, what does it mean to be an Arab in this world, mm -hmm. let alone what it means to be a Palestinian in this world. And everyone is shocked. All these questions we're asking, how can we think that, that doesn't make sense? How do you? can think it is to be raised as an, a, a brown Arab in North America or in, in, in France, where all of our heroes hate us and all everything that is good and, and pure hates us, right? And all those contradictions everyone's seeing now so apparent, that's the world we live in, right? And it's that contradiction, which is the, which is the crease of the place where everyone is 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 meeting now. That's the barricades where everyone is 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 coming and, and converging upon. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll add to that is to the place of a global analysis, mm -hmm. right? Um, in addition to sort of the the solidarity, because I think when you mm -hmm. recognize and you under you know you recognize and you understand, and I'm I'm going to call in my my sister and comrade Gail Lewis in this is to walk alongside people and to know what their struggle is, is mm -hmm. part of what solidarity is. And I think when people sort of wake up to that, there's also a way in which they can then sort of take in affectively also what the pain and, and, and the, the harm that's been done. So, and, and that is a basis of a solidarity movement and sort of like Robin Kelly would say, it's, it's not a market exchange. Solidarity is not a market exchange. And that's the global analysis that's happening right now, right? Is the global analysis to understand how racial capitalism comes in together with imperialism, comes in together with settler colonialism around logic, like James was saying, right? It's the same logic, different places, same logic. And I think people are seeing that and have a different have a renewed discourse that we're seeing spread and that is ex incredibly sophisticated mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. from student movements onwards i'm not surprised by that by the way i know there are some people that are like wow these young people are like yeah. that i'm like i'm not surprised with that yeah. i work with students all the time they're uh, they're fucking awesome and they have it down and it isn't but but like you're saying it's not just generational but we're joining forces in terms of a global discourse and here's the discourse also that we're seeing most recently in the last week what have we been seeing we have been seeing protesters disrupt business right understand that the thing that will bring everything to a halt is when capitalism also is dented so you see folks refusing for example to load ships we see people disrupting bridges. We see people doing sit-ins 
right, in places of mass transportation. We see people putting pressure and with the analysis, not just like, oh, we just happened upon this place and we're going to make everybody inconvenient. No, the analysis is when you cost people money, when you cost corporations money, that is also what allows them to see the pressures. That allows them to feel the pressures. And this is also a really important point for us is that how we conceptualize wins, right? And what are failures? Because there are some sort of, uh, you know, interventions, for example, where indigenous folks really led the way and, and allowed for this analysis to come to being is that even when the ship does end up getting loaded, that we have to be careful about how we look at that and say, this is an entire failure and rather understand that costing money right? That people will think twice, that that having the schedules, the time that capitalism runs on, have a dent in that, that the clock ends up being a weapon we can use, right? Because everything is right. If FedEx doesn't get something there on time, that is a dent in there in terms of what they can deliver, right? Their deliverables and what they can promise to people. So that's, I think, uh, also what we're seeing, right? Yes, a, a, a raised global consciousness around Palestine, which again, the end point, I don't want to lose Palestine in this and Palestinians. It's liberation. It's liberation of 75 years of forced settler colonialism and apartheid, right? That is, of course, our immediate, our immediate ask. Right. And our immediate demand, our immediate expectation. And that that is what people are fighting for. And then also to imagine more. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just about dismantling this and then, you know, having another form of domination. It's going back to saying, what are all the pieces that have to be pushed up against constantly in emergence so that we can live in a world that is free of domination and exploitation, regardless of where that happens? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with. A huge amount of of what's just been said. I I, I think rather than opportunity, I look at process and what is it that was happening before this this latest round of violence, or how however you, you know, want to call it, in, uh, from October seventh onwards, is Israel knows that the balance of rights lies with the Palestinians, and so changes the facts on the ground, and that's been the the policy uh, for couple of decades. And Netanyahu's policy, which almost everybody thought was working very well on its own terms, to make a Palestinian state uh, on a two-state model impossible through you know, the annexation of the of more and more of the West Bank, ethnic cleansing, and treating the Palestinians as a security concern and doing its um, negotiations with uh, other with Arab states, excluding the Palestinian question from those from those peace negotiations, and the world was basically silent about this. That it, you know, not only seventy five years of dispossession, but also the foreclosing what seemed like the foreclosing of hope of uh, of liberation, even on limited. And I think what, you know, the process that has begun, I mean, obviously what we're seeing is absolutely unspeakably horrific and the number of people that are being killed and the lives that are being ruined and the trauma that's being that's being exacted. But what we're seeing is the potential for the facts on the ground to swing in the direction of Palestinian liberation, not because 
the Palestinians are somehow going to have sufficient military force to overcome Israel. We know that that isn't the case. How is Israel able to dominate the Palestinians? And it's because it has the military force, which it gets from the US, and it has the diplomatic cover, which it gets from the US or, you know, from the US and the US's, US's system. And what is now going on in Palestine, because it is spurring action all over the world, we have the potential to change the facts on the ground by eroding the support, military and diplomatic, that Israel has and thereby opening up the potential for a different set of geopolitical forces to bring forward some kind of settlement. I mean, uh, you know, I was mentioning Oslo earlier, you know, Oslo, like the end of apartheid, is a consequence of the end of the Cold War in, a, in kind of contradictory ways. In the case of apartheid South Africa, because the US was no longer scared of communism, they no longer had to hold on to their embarrassing, disgusting, uh, racist cousin uh, on the southern tip of, uh, uh, of Africa. It, you know, the cost was too high. They didn't need to do it anymore. So they did. And then, uh, you know, the other uh, and then with, with, with Oslo, um, because of the there not being the Soviet Union and, and the US shifting its focus as it did then shift its focus. It was able to dictate terms in a in a different way, and I think this combination of factors that we are seeing, the shift in the balance of moral force from north to south in the world, opens up new diplomatic possibilities that can shift uh, weight in the direction of Palestinian liberation. I think the clear lack of support in the US and the UK and other similar countries for state policy has the potential to erode that state policy. It will get harder for our governments to give this car, you know, this blank check diplomatic and military support to an Israeli regime that is committing such obvious heinous crimes. And, you know, for me, the most inspiring element of this and to, to echo uh, Lara is people directly disrupting the Israeli war machine. The Israeli war machine doesn't exist within the borders of the Holy Land or with the borders of historic Palestine. It, that, it's a globe-spanning supply chain of death and it has offices and factories and suppliers and outsourced cleaning companies and shipping routes and energy suppliers and oil and all of these things. It is a linked up system, which is actually not that robust. It can produce lots of weapons, but it has fragility. And its fragility is, as we're seeing, yes, in the ability to disrupt. And I think that will only grow, you know, as, as people fight, work out more and more and we map more and more of this uh, of this war machine and we can shift the attention away from the kind of softly softly thing that some people will look at oh you know how can we shift investments from this thing to that thing people go no 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 we don't need to map investments we need to map the supply chain in order to break it and that is beginning to happen but also it is fragile because it is because it's mediatic because it's mimetic 
these actions. Like, uh, so in the uh, Arop in the Bay Area, stopping, you know, delaying those the, those two boats, which then leads to these guys on jet skis with fucking Palestine flags in uh, in Australia. It's like stop it, stopping a boat. Um, like in, unbelievable image, inspiring image that will spur many, many more actions like that. And it also forces them into the weakest possible position. I saw today some yeah, US congressperson or senator or something worried about the safety of Elbit systems, the safe, using the language of safety after one of the uh, Elbit systems, the, the 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 weapons company that that that, that supports um uh, that supports uh, uh, Israeli arms, um because they're having their offices daubed with uh, with red paint and they're being proven. Now, of course, the state is cracking down incredibly hard on the people that take this uh, this direct action. We see it in the UK, we see we see it in the in the US and elsewhere, and everyone doing it is incredibly brave. But there is so much that can be done from direct action, trade union action, to not be complicit, to break the ties of complicity, to choke the arteries of the war machine. And it's the major cry, if any, you know, anyone's in a trade union, your union is in some way, your work is in some way connected to the Israeli war machine. That might, You might not think so. It might be a small union that organizes outsourced migrant workers who are cleaners. Well, there are outsourced migrant workers who are cleaners who clean the offices of these companies. You know, everybody actually has a connection to this uh, to this war machine. They can organize uh, within it and help break it. And I think the combination of those those three factors outside of Palestine can help shift the facts on the ground for inside Palestine, which gives uh, some avenue for liberation in amongst this calamity that is um you know the, this the latest chapter in the calamity that is befalling the palestinian people are there any kind of final points i mean i think that would be a good way to end i think that's a great call to action you know if you're not already get any union join an organization give some money to an organization go and stand outside a bae systems office in kent for a day just to just to, to further emphasize it the the connections to the israeli war machine that like what you're seeing with the weapons companies is just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much underneath. Like Amazon, for example, has is part of a project Nimbus, a contract with the uh, with the Israeli state. There is a movement of Amazon tech workers working with no tech for uh, no tech for apartheid, trying to get that contract cancelled. There are so many companies, and it's it's not just uh, that that are actively involved. You can find the links and the connections. And you are somehow through your uh, your position in the economy, what you do, you are connected in some way to these uh, to these companies. And exactly as Lara was saying, that's actually where they're weakest. It's why it's the hidden abode of production. And if you get in there, they will freak out. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Lara, Stephen and James for their insights and their time. One final reminder that if you would like to support Red Medicine, please do consider going to the show notes and signing up for a donation, giving the show five stars 
or sharing this episode with people you think might enjoy it. Thanks again.